Welcome to part two of my amazing interview with Michael Payne. I hope you had a chance to listen to the first version. Um, now, today, we will kick it off with my question to Michael on ambush marketing and how the ISC deals with it. And that's actually a great topic. I'll just spend a little bit of time on it. That's the ambush marketing side of it, right? I mean, you know, that term is even probably was created in, in the world of sports. Um, and it's everywhere, and, and it always happens. Um, you know, as the marketing director during your era, during that time, you know, what was it really what you felt you could do and where you just throw up your hand and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it? No, we did everything we needed to, we had to do. Um, we never threw the towel in. Uh, and again, this was something perhaps in the media context was made into a much bigger issue in the Olympics than it really was because it started out that we got our house in order by getting all the rights into a central um, program so that you weren't able to sort of cut and dice the opportunities. Mm. Uh, and then we ran a very aggressive um, defense program. Yeah, how many uh, lawyers had you, did you have on, on, on a call during the Olympics? What's oh, we had, a, we had a lot of lawyers, but I mean, actually, often the case wasn't law that got the company to back down. Okay. It was public relations. So, you know, we had a very high profile public fight with American Express. And uh, we caught American Express on, you know, one or two, um, one or two naughty initiatives, shall we say. Right. And we basically said, look, forget the legal. We just wrote to the CEO of American Express and said, you've got 48 hours to withdraw this. If you don't withdraw it, this is what we're going to do. We will hold a press conference. Um, I think it was going to be in Hong Kong because that's where it was happening. We will announce that what you're undertaking is a fraud designed to deceive the public. And here's the proof. And we will have four Olympic medalists cutting up your card in front of TV. Oh, wow. Nice one. It took about two hours for the program to be withdrawn. Amazing. Or you had another case. I think it was Burger King against McDonald's. Burger King CEO was launching uh, his biography and in a bookshop. And so we lined up four or five Olympians to go and stand up in the queue um, to get the book signed. Uh, they tipped off all the media to come along to have some fun. And the moment they got to the front of the queue, uh, they unveiled, you know, nice banners, uh, you know, referring to the CEO as being a cheat and a parasite. Wow. And you circulate you know, two or three incidents like that, you make sure that all the advertising agencies are briefed. Mm. But if you step over the line, you know, we'll come back you, at we'll you, come get you in ways that uh, because it is the Olympics, because there is no advertising in the stadium, because it's the value proposition, gave us a moral, if you want, high ground credibility um, mm that proved very effective. Yeah, 
Great. Very, very interesting. And, and uh, as brutal as it sounds like, uh, A, it worked, and, and B, the, I think there's some great learnings for others in this. Uh, now, I, while we're at these learning, and, and this is a great uh, segue into the next one here, really, we always like to cover a bit, you know, what are the biggest learnings of your career in general? Um, and we always start a bit more on the positive side of things. Um, but I want to take maybe what's not necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily call a positive thing, and that's the crisis. Obviously, the, the Olympics faced uh, in, with Salt Lake City, I think, 1999. Um, but something positive came out of it. So can you talk us through maybe your learning from that and, uh, you know, and give us some examples? Um, yeah, that's 1999, we were on you know full steam ahead the top program was going from strength to strength tv rights were going from strength we had strong candidate cities sydney was lining up looking great mm. and the whole thing fell apart yep. from one day to the next revolved around a corruption scandal on the bidding uh, for salt lake city and it was a perfect storm between you know, the purity of the olympics and the mormons and the level of sort of American corruption that went into play. Yep. And for a period of about three months, uh, would go into the office each day against a media backdrop of maybe up to 2,000 journalists on the case, each one trying to win the Pulitzer Prize with the latest level of investigative journalism. And you'd go into the office at nine in the morning or six in the morning in the crises and you didn't know if the organization would survive the day. Wow. Each day, every day for three months. Um, but once we got full control over um, the scandal, once we understood exactly uh, you know, what the issues, the crimes were, we then looked to how could we transform this and basically put th what would take 30 years of reform through the system in six months. And that's exactly what we you know, eventually did, uh, where I remember I was commuting back and forth to America every week to meet with the CEOs of the uh, top partners, the broadcasters, because they were under tremendous pressure from the media to withdraw and pull their sponsorship. And then you would have had a domino effect of everything just collapsing. Yeah. And with the CEO of, uh, I think Paul Allaire, the CEO of Xerox at the time, and he said to me, so Michael, the real measure of this is whether you can turn the crisis to your advantage. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And as brutal as it was going through the first part of 99, I think any of us who were involved with it would actually willingly go through it again, uh, knowing we could get the results that we did in terms of transforming the the Olympic movement. Um, and so that was just, a, just as a key learning that um, you know, when you've got a major crisis or a problem, uh, you know, you're, you're far fighting to save the organization, but how can you um, take advantage of the situation and do and achieve things that otherwise would be impossible? 
Yeah, that, and that's that's a great example. So, and, and again, leadership, of course, is was I'm sure a key role in this. Who was you know who was driving it really within? Was it really all the way top of the, from the president down, or you know who was sort of the main the, the main people you know making it work at that time? Besides yourself, I mean, it it, it was uh, it was a, it was a small, very tight group. I mean, written by Sam Ranch. Uh, Dick Pound, the IOC vice president and uh, Canadian lawyer, right. was he led and chaired the reform committee. Uh, the director general, Francois Cahar, who was also a very eminent uh, Swiss lawyer, um, and then a, um, and a communications team. Uh, it was um, it was a sort of a, a small group. Um, but you were having to, to turn around an oil tanker, you know, and as I say, effectively getting turkeys to vote for Christmas because the reform mechanisms that the membership, and this was at the time a very Anglo-Saxon driven crisis and, you know, people in other parts of the world and Africa or whatever were not necessarily sort of aware that the house was on fire. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I well remember all the stories going on there, and like you said, it, it was, uh, uh, and, and that's why I like it here. It's, it's a, it was a huge crisis, obviously for the, for the, uh, for the movement, but it was turned into something positive. Like you said, you know, huge changes around it. So, great story on that. Um, now, I want to, I want to go the other way. Um, you know, I think we all sometimes, uh, you know, learn, learn lessons which were, you know, things which, which didn't work, right? Uh, you know, maybe things we regret in some form or fashion, but don't we doing? Would you have any of that? Um, whether it's related to, doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be related to the IOC, maybe, and in, in some of the other uh, parts of your career or life. Um, of course. I mean, you know, over the, um, the, the period of time, you would look back and, um, you know, wish, you know, you'd done things differently. Um, you take the Atlanta Olympic Games. I mean, they were not a poster child of, um, you know, success on all fronts. Right. Uh, um, the, you know, with hindsight, you know, at one year to go to the Games, we knew the problems. We knew of the problems of the commercialization with the mayor. We knew of the problems with IBM uh, and the technology. We knew of the problems of security and of transport. Uh, and we're just told by the Americans, uh, by Lou Gerstner, the chairman of you know, IBM, look, this is America. We're not going to embarrass ourselves. Um, you know, so who are you to second guess us? Mm. Um, and we took that on credit. And, you know, with hindsight, you know, we should have kept second guessing. Uh, and straight after the, you know, Atlanta games and the problems, you know, Sam Ranch turned around to me and said, don't ever, ever let that happen again. Uh, do whatever you've got to do to change the host city contract structure. You know, the IOC is the ultimate owner and franchise. Um, and you saw that bought, you know, to bear, you know, a week ago when the IOC changed the marathon in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, because they deemed ultimately that's what was was right. It is a partnership with the host country, but uh, the host country, you know, often has very short-term views that are not necessarily in sync with the long-term views. So there were certainly times during the you know Olympic career where um, I would regret not being a lot harder and tougher 
uh, on forcing through ultimately what was needed to be done to protect the, um, you know, if you want, the Olympic brand. But if uh, you would put your finger on it, what, what, what was the sort of one main thing which with Atlanta went wrong and, and, and on the back of it maybe snowballed into others? Unfortunately, there wasn't one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I mean, there was a symptom of maybe of a broader issue was that Uh, the organizing committee that was made up of you know great, well-meaning executives uh, were forced by the city to also have to pay for the bricks and mortar and build the venue, mm. and there just wasn't enough money to go around. So, with a dysfunctional relationship with the mayor, who subsequently ended up in prison for corruption. Um, you know, he just did everything to spite or contradict the organizing committee, uh, and it made it impossible. That that, uh, that leads me to another question, um, because we read it all the time, right? Athens had similar problems, right? And if I recall correctly, there were times where, again, you know, it was they were threatened that the Olympics might be pulled from them. Um, you know, Rio, again, I remember, you know, had things happening at the last minute, you know, the, the bay still being, you know, not clean and all those sort of things. So, I mean, it, it, there seems to be, there is some, there's some pattern to it, right? Tokyo, I'm sure, you know, Tokyo yes. has its challenges. Do you, do you ever see that, you know, the threat of the Olympics would be pulled, I mean, do really would that ever happen? I mean, I, I personally can't see it. Um, and obviously, you have to say it as if when you come when you are the Olympics um, to get people moving. But you know, it's such a large event, and of course, the the slap in the face for the country would be just unbelievable. Um, how do you see this? I mean, what, what, you know, you were directly involved in these things. Well, I mean, first of all, Athens, um, yeah, in the build-up, got into serious trouble, yeah, and. Uh, Sam Ranch did threaten to pull. Correct. And that threat caused the stock market in Greece to crash. Hmm. Uh, it was the wake-up call that was needed, uh, the change in the organizing team that the IOC drove through. And Athens went on to be, in my view, stunningly successful and great games. Hmm. Uh, you know, Greece has then sort of had the legacy of, oh, their bankruptcy. You know, it was nothing to do with the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics was less than 1% of their capital expense. It was the rest of their management and social sort of investment structure. Sure. Um, and Rio was also a very difficult uh, games, uh, again, because of a, a, a very weak management. Um, I think the lessons learned from Rio are such that the IOC has become far more risk-adverse, far more work has been done up front in the selection of the city. Mm -hmm. And I think under the, <clears throat> I think the current leadership of the IOC would have forced changes in the Rio leadership Uh, in the way that Samaranch did with Greece. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think at the time, um, you know, Jacques Rogg uh, didn't force through changes that should have been done um, because it was, it was a management problem in the end that could have been fixed. Right, right. 
Yeah, great. Perfect. Um, now, love to now start thinking, looking a bit ahead. Um, you know, let's think about the next ten years, or, or in Olympic terms, the next eight years, four you know four year cycles here. Uh, we have Paris, we have LA. Uh, again, great cities, which I'm sure will do an amazing job. Uh, where do you see what What do you see is happening? Where do you see the Olympics is going, or in general, sports um, is happening. What's going on? You know, the change in power, maybe also. You know, Asia, of course, getting bigger and bigger in the in the world. Uh, where do you, where, you know, from where you're sitting, and you clearly are still very much on the pulse of it through your own agency there. Um, what's your own impression where the world is going? Um, well, I think the Olympics is in very robust health. Mm. Um, you wouldn't always sort of. Take that view if you look at some of the, 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 the media headlines, if you look at the challenges of running sort of public boats, the whole uh, role of the media, the role of fake news, the role of social media and news has changed the environment for everybody, not just sports organizations, but you know, politicians, companies, everybody. Uh, and you're having to be far more sort of aggressive in getting your story out and understanding how to get your story out. But if you look at the Olympics, I mean, Tokyo, I think, is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the World Rugby Cup last week was, was a great preview. And I think the Japanese are going to, you know, rebrand their whole country in the way that Tokyo 64 did. Uh, you go on to, uh, you know, Beijing with 22. Yeah, they will stage a, a great winter games. It will be transformative for winter sport in the area. Yeah. Paris 24, LA 28. I think LA in 28 will provide a level of innovation and new thinking in the way that LA 84 did. Yes. Uh, uh, so you, you've got a you've got a great set of hosts. You've got. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody keeps tuning in and watching. I mean, they may be no longer watching on the big screen. It may be the smaller screen or whatever, but the way people are consuming content. So I think the outlook for the Olympics is very positive. And, you know, the broader outlook for sport uh, as people, you know, have more time to consume or participate in sport. But, you know, how companies, sponsors, or media groups engage with sport, you know, is very different from a decade or two ago. Uh, and that's, you know, that's very exciting. Uh, but you've also got to continually uh, be looking to sort of reinventing the narrative uh, and being very, you know, forward thinking. Uh, in terms of how do you build community, how do you create engagement? Um, but there's, you know, the outlook is, is, is strong, and anybody wanting to enter into the industry, I think, is coming in at a great time. Yeah, I would agree. Um, while we talk about that, uh, you know, I would say, you know, when we, in the early days, we, it was the American brands and certain European brands who were very dominant in, in, the, in, in the Olympics or, the, or even the FIFA World Cup. Then you had, of course, the Japanese brands coming in and then the Koreans. And now I think it's clear the Chinese are coming um, very, very strongly. Um, you know, maybe Indian companies haven't quite seen them as, as much yet in it. Where, what do you see? Um, do you see there 
other either regions or other uh, um, groups are starting to show up, or this is really it, sort of India, China going to be sort of the next big wave of companies entering the Olympics and, and the larger global sporting events? Yeah, I mean, it's just a natural evolution of you know, the world's economy. Absolutely. Um, you know, and globalization. Uh, combined with, if you want, the newer players uh, looking back at their predecessors and understanding the important role that sport played in helping them create global brands. So, you know, it's, it's for me just a natural evolution and you will continue, uh, you know, to see the big sports properties having an ever more global footprint of partners. Yeah. Now, I know we've talked mostly about the world of sponsorship and, and marketing, you know, but I know you obviously were also very heavily involved in the broadcast world. And, you know, we all know how that has been, you know, the evolution of that. Um, maybe a couple of quick words on where do you see that's going? Um, I was this afternoon, I was just at a Facebook conference here in Malaysia. Um, you know, and again, we all know the the giants they are, and, and how they're changing the consumption habits uh, for for you know people. What, what do you see? Where do you see the the media rights and the whole space heading? What's your belief that's going on there? Well, live sports will only become ever more important because um, it's the one thing that you can't zap through or control the time as to when you're going to watch it. Um, and so if live sport pulls the big audience, you know, the marketeers and everything will also pay attention and follow. Um, now, you know, when I started out, you know, you might have had one or two channels in a given country who could deliver that audience. Uh, you know, nowadays you've got multiple channels and platforms to build the audience and there probably isn't a one size fits all uh, that you've got as a property to be active across multiple different platforms if you're wanting to engage with the different audiences and demographics um, the whole new media, social media um you know, world is now sort of key component. I mean, it's interesting is how I you know, got back involved with Formula One uh, was in the late 90s. You know, at the time, everybody was saying, oh, social media, uh, new media, Internet, that's the future. Um, it's going to replace television. Mm -hmm. And several of the leading sports property owners were sort of all jumping into the, the new media space. And I had uh, Bernie Eccleston call me and so I said, Michael, what do you make of this new media gig? What do we do with it? And I said, it's clearly going to be important one day, but I can't work out how to make any money on it today. And I'm not about to tear up the contracts of my billion-dollar contracts with TV. And the media was criticizing me as being an old you know, dinosaur and not understanding the future trends. And I said, I'm not willing to take the risk. I don't believe the business model or audience is there today. Mm. And Bernie said, you know, I'm with you 100%. And we were the only two that sat it out. Everybody else jumped in and got a very bad cold at the end of 2000 when the whole thing blew up. Right. And it then took the better part of a decade before it properly came back again. 
and now has structure and foundations uh, to you know to deliver. But we're, we're you know um, I had that conversation with Phil Lyons, a personal friend of both of us. Um, you know, obviously very much involved in the Premier League rise around the world recently, and and we were debating this as well. Um, you know, and and we sort of agreed that uh, we we actually currently seeing a dip in rights in in many parts around the world and in, in many leagues. Um, I know you're involved in in other sports. Uh, wh what do you see? Do you see that as well, or are you still continuously seeing a year on year or, or you know cycle on cycle growth uh, in the media space and the media rights space? There's no one single answer to that. I mean, it depends on the country. It depends on the dynamic of competition in that country. It yeah. depends on the currency, because a lot of the TV rights are you know related in dollars or euros yep. but the local broadcaster is um, paying in his local currency Correct. so you know he may be you know uh, in dollars you may be getting a 25% haircut on your rights fee and in his local currency you're getting a 50% increase mm. um, it depends on you know the, the competitive dynamic you know is there a new kid coming in the block who wants to um You know, challenge the existing players. Uh, there are too many moving parts for a simple, you know, catch-all answer to that. Yeah, no, no, I agree. It, it, it is, uh, it is complex. Um, you know, now I, I one other thing I forgot to ask you earlier, and that is um, the age of the average viewer, whether it's Olympics or certain other sports as well. I've, you know, there's always these statistics which you see out there. Um, obviously, getting older and older. Um, do you see that as an opportunity or is that a challenge again to sports of how to attract that younger generation of, you know, people who are maybe not as, you know, in tune as we are and in, in, in growing up with sports in the same way? Well, uh, it is a big issue. Um, how do you ensure that each new generation is committed and engaged in sport? And you know the fact today that a sort of younger generation has uh, multiple has choice, multiple yeah. different options as to what they're going to go out and do or watch. And I think uh, you know, starting with you know government, they need to pay far more attention as to what is the role of sport in the school curriculum. Mm -hmm. because if it's not part of the education and curriculum to begin with and you can learn an awful lot through sport from the issue of team coordination or you know, collaboration, respect, uh, you know, which I would argue are as important to be taught in school as it is to be taught you know, to count or to read, mm -hmm. um, I think that's where it has to, to start. Totally then, then, you know, you, you can no longer assume that somebody is just going to tune in and watch because you think you're the biggest show in town. You've got to engage and communicate with them uh, and, you know, to do so on their platforms to get them hooked. Uh, I think if you look at Tokyo Uh, 2020, you know, the younger generation will all be connected and engaged with Tokyo 
They will all have their, you know, different stars. They will all be talking about speed climbing and some of the new events. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't happen by accident. You've you got to get out there and, and work and reach with your partners reaching out to them. Uh, you know, they're not all going to be watching NBC or the national TV channels. They will be consuming across multiple other different channels and devices. Uh, and, you know, the sports bodies have just got to be, you know, recognition and responsive to that. Yeah, no, fully. And and it's interesting. We we ran a campaign many years ago in India uh, with a sponsor, actually, to uh, lobby for to get sports more active in schools and, and get on the curriculum. Uh, and we end up it, we're achieving it. Uh, it landed on the minister's desk and then on the back of it, uh, it became more prominent. So sometimes it, it takes these sort of activities to do this. Uh, um, but before we kind of wrap it up, yeah, I have one last question, which obviously make, uh, leads into, again, the future of sports and esports, as we all know, is, is a big buzzword all around the world. Um, you know, the world's still trying to figure it out really what it all means and, and is. Um, where do you see that, again, with regards to the Olympics? Um, do you ever see esports really becoming a, let's call it, proper medaled event and, and athletes competing in it in some fashion? Um, I don't see it becoming a medal event. Um, but I do see it playing an important role in building the sport fan base Uh, you know, some of the most, some of the more successful video games all have a sporting theme. Uh, a lot of the, you know, superstars, uh, you know, of sport also play the video games. And so creating a dialogue narrative between um, the sport and the fan base so that they better understand, you know, the rules and engagement, um, I think is critically important. But I don't personally see it ever being on the Olympic program. Interesting. Michael, it's been fantastic talking to you. I could go on forever, uh, but I know you have to run and also uh, keeping in mind uh, our listeners here. So um, you have a final word of wisdom or, or maybe a metaphor uh, in sports and life uh, from your own athlete career or from your, of course, uh, career in the sports world we want to share, and then we'll wrap it up here. No, it's just been a great privilege to be at the forefront of this industry over you know the last four decades uh, you know to, to see it evolve and to help it evolve and transform and uh, I you know think it continues to be very exciting times and um, you know would encourage you know anybody looking at the sport and business to seriously consider it because it's a great career and opportunity and fun. That for sure. I think that's what we all are. We're having lots of fun with it. It keeps us young. And uh, I hope to see you in Tokyo or somewhere else again around the world very soon. And again, thank you very much for being here today. And uh, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. And uh, hope all your listeners enjoyed the journey. I'm sure they will. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.